0: So they completely reject the commands that God have given, has given them, the worship of God, and he again makes the point, they committed the very abominations for which God had driven the prior nations out of the land. You see how he keeps adding that at the end of this? He's just preparing us. They're doing the very same things that God had driven the pagan nations out for. Now it's the people of God who are doing the same sorts of sins. Keep reading. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So we're told in verse 10 that during this God was sending prophets to Manasseh and to the people to warn them and to call them to repent. And I would make a point of saying Manasseh's not the only one sinning in all of this. It says in in one of those verses that, where is it said? Verse 11, that Manasseh has also made Judah sin with his idols. Now, when it says he made them sin, it doesn't mean he twisted their arms. It means he's their leader. And he is leading them into sin. And the impression is, he led them, but they didn't put up much resistance to this. They gladly went into this idolatry with their king. So God's judgment is now inescapable. God is patient, but God is not apathetic. And no nation... No people will be allowed to commit this sort of overt, in God's face, evil and not be judged for it. So at this point in the story, judgment is most certainly going to fall on the house of Judah. And he gives four descriptions of what that judgment is going to look like. First, you'll notice that he says that when people hear of this judgment, their ears Will tingle. It's the word for like quake or shiver. And I think the picture is that when people hear of how terrible the judgment is that falls on the city of Jerusalem, that it will make people quiver in fear over it. We we might use something like uh, it'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. That that's kind of the word picture that he's given. And then secondly, he gives this construction analogy. Imagine a contractor who goes out on the work site and he is measuring every line and he is measuring every angle, but he's not measuring to build something, he's measuring in order to demolish it. That's the picture that he's giving. It's It's like the same measuring line that God used to pour judgment out on the northern kingdom, he's going to bring those same measurements and apply them to the southern kingdom now. God knows every line, He knows every angle, and He's going to make sure that the whole thing now comes crashing down. So there's a construction image, and then He uses a a domestic image, and He gives the picture of washing dishes. So imagine tonight you're at the sink, and you're washing dishes, and you take a bowl, and you clean it out, and after you're done with it, you get your hand towel, and you dry it, but you don't stop there. After you dried it, you turn it upside down, and you set it on your towel next next to the sink to make sure every last drop drips out that's the picture he's giving that God's not just going to lightly wipe them in judgment that God's judgment is going to be thorough he is going to wipe them clean and he's going to turn it upside down and this this is probably thinking about the population the people that God's going to turn it upside down he's going to empty the land of these people his judgment is going to be so thorough and then finally he gives this picture of abandonment that's the last one in verse 14. "I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies." Okay, that's God is saying He is going to abandon them. God's going to hand them over to their enemies." Now think of all of the stories over first and second kings where God has been their defender. We just saw it with Hezekiah, right? Where the angel of the Lord slays 185,000 of their enemies to protect them. And now God is saying he's not going to be their shield. He's not going to be their deliverer. He's not going to be their defender. He is going to withdraw that and he is going to let the Assyrians come in and plunder them as his instrument of judgment because of their sin. So it's a picture of devastating judgment. And verse 15, strikes kind of a sad note. Because notice, their rebellion against God, it's, it's terrible under Manasseh. But had their rebellion started during the days of Manasseh? According to verse 15, when had their rebellion started? From the time that God delivered them from Egypt. It's like no sooner had they crossed the Red Sea and God drowned Pharaoh's army than they started complaining against God. And they rebelled all the way to the promised land, and they rebelled when they got to the promised land, and they rebelled in the days of the judges, and they rebelled in the days of the kings, and now they are still rebelling against God, and now they have passed the point of no return. That there's there's no escaping God's judgment now. Now I mentioned, after this, there's going to come another good king named Josiah. And because of Josiah, there's going to be good reforms and there's going to be a delay, but that's all that's going to be. So it's like the wheels of judgment have now been set in motion and there's no stopping the gears of it. His judgment is most certainly coming now. Okay, so that's the picture of these verses. All right, keep going. Verse 16. Here's another thing Manasseh did. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sins by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So what else did Manasseh do? He shed much innocent blood. So it's like one end of Jerusalem to the next was splattered with the blood of the innocent. Now, we're not told who all this is. Uh, Jewish sources outside of the Bible say that what he did is he went on a killing spree against prophets, and Manasseh began to murder prophets, and we don't know for sure if that's accurate or not, but that's what Jewish, in fact, Jewish sources say that one of the prophets that Manasseh killed was the prophet Isaiah. This, this is, of course, is the time period when Isaiah is living, and those sources say that the way he was killed is they put Isaiah in a hollowed-out tree log and sawed him in half. And that's how Isaiah died. And if that's the case, do you remember that story in the, hate, the, the fake hall of fame in Hebrews 11 where it's describing this and it describes those who were faithful to the Lord and it says, and some of them were sawn in two. And it could be that that's the story that he's talking about there in, in Hebrews. Either way, Manasseh is at the point where he's sitting against God, he's leading the people into rebellion, he's murdering the innocent And he has crossed the line. Verses 17 and 18, here's the final summary. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. And then his son Ammon reigned in his place. So this is is a summary of his life. And you get some summary like this At the end of just about every king's story, there's just one thing that's unusual in this summary of Manasseh's life. And the unusual thing is right there in verse 17. Now the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, all that he did, and you see that phrase, and the sin that he committed. So Manasseh is the only king where when the sort of summary is given of his life in the last few verses, where it makes a point of reminding us again of the sin that he committed. It's like Manasseh was so evil that you can't even mention him without mentioning his sin. He's a murderer, he's a blasphemer, he's an idolater, which makes this next thing so unbelievable. You won't have it on the board. If you want to turn over to 2 Chronicles, let me show you one last little vignette from his life. 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 33. You can listen as I read if you don't want to turn over. Second Chronicles 33 gives another story from Manasseh's life. Starting in verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Okay, that's what we've been hearing in Kings. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, that's Yahweh, Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God so get what 2 Chronicles is adding. So apparently late in Manasseh's life, um, Assyria, Babylon comes in and they haul him off with, with hooks as a captive. And it's as he's there. And by the way, we would read that part of the story, no one we know from 2 Kings and want to cheer. Yes, he's getting what he deserves. But apparently he gets there and he's humbled by the experience And he cries out to God for help, and God hears him and delivers him. Now, that's, after what we've read, that's a shocking part of the story. Because again, what sort of person was Manasseh? A murderer, a blasphemer, an idolater. But it seems that maybe at the end of his life, he was converted, that he genuinely turned back to the Lord. And there are a couple of things we could say about that. One is it's just as if we needed one, a further reminder of how lavish God's mercy is. So if if you're ever tempted to think, man, after what I've done, there is no way God could forgive me. You don't know what I've done. Well, have you murdered any prophets lately? Have you led any nations into idolatry? Have you, have you put any idolatrous images of Asherah in the heart of the temple? Well, if God showed mercy to someone like Manasseh, isn't that a great reminder that, that no one who will humble themselves before God is beyond the reach of his mercy? Now, there's other things we could say, um, because as you combine 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, still throughout the end of second chronicles and the rest of second kings manasseh is still held up as someone who did tremendous damage to the nation of judah okay he's, he has brought in idolatry he has turned the people away from god so it could be that he turned back to the lord and his soul is saved but but his legacy isn't recovered he has so many decades behind him of blasphemy and idolatry that, that he's saved, but his legacy sort of remains. So this is, the, I guess, to combine two things and we'll finish up. So there's this great promise in the Bible, like the thief on the cross, there can be end of life conversions. There can be deathbed conversions. God can save someone at the very end, but you rarely find deathbed conversions where there is after that a legacy of godliness. Right, a legacy of godliness requires it requires time, it requires years of faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. So we're thankful that God can save us at any point. I, I, don't, I want to be saved and not just not have the legacy of Manasseh. Right? Have, have a legacy of faithfulness and commitment that's more than this. But it is a picture of God's mercy. Then his son Ammon. Let's read this and we'll, we'll wrap up. Got to get through the rest of this chapter. Real quick, here's what happens after, has, um, after Manasseh. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotba, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served, and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son, Josiah, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. And then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. How long does... How long does Manasseh's son, Ammon, reign? Manasseh was 55. Ammon is two years. Why does he only reign two years? He's assassinated. There are some servants who probably don't like his policy with Assyria. They execute him. But here's another good little hint about Judah. What do the people of Judah do with the assassins? They bring them to justice, and they execute them. Think about why that's important. These assassins kill Manasseh, and when you kill the king, you have another king you're wanting to implant. So they, they clearly have someone else they want to put on the throne, and the people of Judah stop them, and they execute them justly, which means who's going to stay on the throne? It means the line of David is going to stay on the throne. And the next king for the throne is Ammon's son, Josiah. And if you know anything about Josiah... He's a very good king. So it's like in this chapter that is so dark and so bleak, at the very end of it, we we get this ray of light. There are better days coming. God is still, even though judgment's coming, he is still showing mercy to his people. And Josiah is gonna be a sign of that. So we'll come back to that next week. So let's pray and we'll dismiss.